Hi, this is Dr. Allo once again. I'm finally uploading my huge weight loss video. I, it's been requested a million times. This video is the culmination of about 15, 20 years worth of uh, experience with weight loss. I've given this talk all over the country hundreds of times and it seems like every single time it gets better and better. We have new research, more research articles and books have been published. So I've tried to include all of that. As of the summer of 2020, this is all accurate. I'm not a dogmatic person and I don't think that my way is the only way. And if new research comes out uh, and refutes some of the beliefs that I've had, then I change my beliefs and I feel like this version of, of the uh, talk is probably the most accurate and I, I can't wait uh, to hear all your feedback post questions at the bottom of the video and I'll hope to address them uh, in future videos enjoy well thank you everyone for having me um, like uh, Dr. Espinosa said uh, my name is Dr. Allo I'm a cardiologist in Toledo this is by far my most popular and most requested talk um, I've given this talk pretty much all over the country um, Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale, uh, San Diego, Chicago, Cleveland, Washington, D.C., um, various cities in Michigan, kind of all over. It's my most requested talk. Like he said, um, I've played sports my entire life, and now I coach sports. I'm not only a cardiologist, but I'm also a certified personal trainer. And this talk really has been about 20 years in the making. Um, I first started getting into fitness and sports and obesity and weight loss um, back when I was uh, a kid just in high school. I mean, we'd hit the weights, we played football, same thing in college, but I was always a little bit overweight, and then eventually when I got into medical school, and, and even after that, I got a little bit more overweight. Um, I've tried every diet under the sun. Um, like most people, I spent most of my life on a diet. Um, I've read every single diet book and tried every single diet you could possibly imagine. We'll go through a lot of them here in this talk um, and we'll talk about why some of them work and why some of them don't work um, but but that's about it i want to thank the northwest ohio osteopathic association for having me today uh, i'm honored to be here and we're going to have a good time so please feel free to to cut me off and ask questions if you have any um, we're going to try to keep this as informal as possible i know it's booked for two hours I don't know if we'll go the whole two hours. I was thinking of going an hour and a half, hour 20, and opening up the floor for questions. There's always like a million questions um, for this topic, so I, I think we'll do it that way. So uh, before I begin, let me just state that I have zero disclosures. None of the companies that make any of the medications that I talk about have I ever spoken for or have they ever paid me. Um, so we'll get that out of the way. The objectives... Um, are very simple. We want to understand the scope and cost of the obesity problem, the latest research on proven weight loss methods, how to implement a successful weight loss program in your practice. Um, we're going to discuss all the various prescription medications for weight loss, using apps and technology for weight loss. We'll go through some final takeaways and conclusions, and then we'll open it up for uh, questions and answers. So the biggest question is, what is the secret to weight loss? Almost every single book you read or video you watch or a guru on TV or Dr. Oz or Oprah or whoever it is that you watch, everyone wants to know what is the biggest secret to weight loss? Like what, what is it? Just tell us this one little thing to reduce belly fat or if you eat this one little food, it'll make this go away and make that fat go away. Um, unfortunately, I feel like society and, and our culture is always looking um, for that one secret that, that's going to cause weight loss. And, and unfortunately, what we've learned over the years is there really is no secret to weight loss. It's hard work 
and it takes a lot of uh, effort uh, and energy um, to lose weight, and there's there's really no sh- no shortcuts or or secrets about it. So, um, with that said, we're gonna we're gonna talk the weight loss versus fat loss. So weight loss is really easy. You lose muscle mass, you lose water, you lose fat, you lose everything. We don't want to lose just weight. We want to specifically lose fat. Um, we don't want to lose muscle. Um, that's the key. So when we talk about weight loss in this uh, talk, I'm basically referring to fat loss. We want to try to lose as much fat as possible while uh, retaining muscle. We definitely do not want to lose any muscle. Um, that would be the worst thing. So talking about weight management, how many of you um, have successfully lost weight just by a raise of hands? Okay, good. So a lot of people have lost weight. Almost almost the entire crowd raised their hand. Um, almost all Americans, when surveyed, are on a diet all the time. So my question to you then next is how did you do it? Um, what was your trick? Anyone care to share? And I'll repeat what you say so that the microphone picks it up. Okay, good. So she said she she ate. When, oh, she only ate if she was hungry. If she wasn't hungry, then she didn't eat. So that works. How many? How much weight did you lose? Excellent. So thirty pounds. That's excellent. You've kept it off. Oh wow, twenty years kept it off. Wow, that that's excellent. Has anyone tried anything else? Intermittent fasting. Okay, good. Atkins style or keto style diet, South Beach diet, excellent. So, so were you able to maintain and, and keep the weight off? No, you rebounded. Okay, and that's one thing we're going to talk about. Losing the weight is one thing. A lot of people can do a crash diet or exercise like crazy and lose a bunch of weight, but then the key is to try to keep the weight off. So we're going to talk about that uh, as well. And just, just as a, a survey, um, how many of you in your practice do you see patients just for weight management? Okay, not that many, just a few hands here and there. So weight management, you can implement this into your practice and start doing weight management. This is an excellent way to add um, more service lines to your practice. So here's a a picture of me and my kids. Um, This is in our home gym. Uh, We go in there in the winters and and work out, and even in the summer. Um, But but if you start instilling good habits um, when your children are young, um, they're more likely to continue this as they get older. So you got to set examples for your kids and your patients. Try your best to um, work out with them, get them enthusiastic about exercise. So the more you do that, the more likely they are to continue that in, into their adult life. And, then, and children who start that early on are protected against uh, obesity as, as time goes on and they get older. Um, this is a picture of my daughter. She's five years old. She saw me doing a plank with um, 90 pounds on my back so she put two two and a half pound plates on her back wore some gloves and it was really cute so I took a picture of her Um, so yeah so definitely try to get your kids started early so scope of the obesity problem at any one point in time 79 or basically 80 percent of adults are are obese or overweight 22 percent are considered obese which is a uh, a BMI over 30, and the reason we use 30 is because all of the mortality and comorbidities start to happen with a BMI over 30. 16.6% of children 2 to 19 years of age are overweight, 5.6% are obese, 12% of children 2 to 5 years of age are considered 
overweight. So the problem is growing. And here are the charts. I mean, you guys have seen these charts on the CDC website uh, before, probably uh, multiple times. In 1991, if you look at the colors, most of the states are white or light blue. Um, which means only 10 to about 19% of the population was overweight at the time. Um, by 96, there's definitely more darker blue states. By 2004, they had to add new colors because some states were really overweight. The red colors are greater than 25% of the population being overweight. Of course, as time goes on, you got 2011, um, 2011, um, more states are overweight, but now the orange color is 30 to 35 percent of the population's overweight. As time goes on, 2018, now we're looking at greater than 35 percent. A lot of states are in the very dark maroon or this orange color, which are uh, quite overweight. So the, the prevalence of obesity has gone up. Um, the 2016 to 18 Self-reported obesity among non-Hispanic black adults by state and territory. Basically, a lot of the Midwest, the South, the East Coast, all over 35% uh, obesity rates. And it, it's it's huge compared to before we keep adding more colors to, to give, um, to, to, to show the, the amount of obesity. Um, these charts show from the 1960s all the way to, to about 2014, you see that overweight men... Uh, and overweight women have stayed about the same, but obesity in men and women, starting at about the 1980s or maybe 1976, um, has started creeping up and now is a very large uh, percentage. Um, extreme obesity and extreme uh, obesity in men and extreme obesity in women has also gone up uh, a good amount of uh, percentage points there. Um, if you look at um, the trends in adult uh, and childhood obesity, you look at they're also going up from about 1999 to 2016. The percentage of children who are considered obese has gone up from about 13% um, all the way up to 18.5%. And of course, in adults, it's the same thing. We were about 30% and now we're like 39.6% of adults are considered uh, obese. When I lived in Chicago, it was considered the fattest city in the U.S. This was back in 2006. So I moved here to Lucas County in and and, and 2012, and I think they told us that Lucas County at the time was the fattest county in Ohio. Um, so this is a bit of a busy, busy slide. You can kind of read it on your own. But in 1980, 46% of U.S. adults uh, age 20 and older were overweight. By 99, that number was 60%, and this has been going uh, up and up over time, which has led to the following, or they think has coincided with the following several trends, higher energy intake from larger portions of food, including supersizing, greater consumption of high fat foods, which is obviously very calorie dense, widespread availability of low cost, good tasting, energy dense foods. These are hyper palatable foods. Like you can't just eat one Dorito. You have to eat like the entire bag. They're hyper palatable very low cost and very calorie dense. Decreased physical activity, whether it's at work, home, uh, or during leisure time. A lot of schools have even canceled physical education classes. At any given time, 44% of women and 29% of men are dieting. Americans spend at least $50 billion a year on quote-unquote weight loss products, programs, and pills. The costs of obesity are tremendous. Um, I'll let you read this slide. The total cost is $147 billion. Direct cost is $65 billion. Indirect is $56 billion, um, comparable to the economic cost of cigarette smoking. Um, there's also a cost of heart disease, which is $8.8 .8 billion. 
Um, the cost of type 2 diabetes is 98 billion. Cost of osteoarthritis is like joint pain and, and, and joint replacements. Total cost 21.2 billion. Cost of hypertension, uh, 4.1 billion. Cost of gallbladder disease uh, related to being overweight and obesity is 3.4 billion. More costs uh, with all of the different cancers that are related to obesity. Breast cancer, 2.9 billion. Endometrial can cancer, 933 million. Colon cancer, 3.5 billion. What is the cost of lost productivity uh, related to obesity? Um, anybody with a BMI of over 30, um, eight Americans ages 17 to 64, it's 3.9 billion lost per year. Whether that's due to work, work days being missed, they think that there's about 39.3 million lost due to work days being missed. Physician office visits, 62 million. Restricted activity days related to obesity, 239 million. Bed days related to obesity, 89.5 million. This graphic here um, shows the medical complications of obesity, and as you know, pretty much affects every single organ system from your lungs to your liver, gallbladder, gynecological abnormalities, osteoarthritis, skin gout, phlebitis, venous stasis, cancers, pancreatitis, hypertension, dyslipidemia, coronary artery disease, cataract stroke, and idiopathic intracranial hypertension. I mean, if you look at this, every single body, organ, and system is affected. Some of the complications of obesity that we never talk about and nobody ever mentions is, for example, not fitting in a CT scanner. In Chicago, we had this problem a lot. Our patients sometimes were so heavy, we couldn't MRI them or CT them. Um, abdominal surgery and healing. It is very difficult to close an abdomen that is obese, and the wound healing may take forever and may not heal completely. Um, what if you were in a medical emergency? Can they carry you out of your house? Um, there's difficulty in dosing medications. They're not tested on people that are that overweight. The operating tables are sometimes not capable of handling that much weight. And what about not fitting in an airplane? Um, so the statistics on diets failing, 50-70% um, of people gain their uh, weight back in one year, 85% within two years, 95% in three years. So there's basically only a 5% success rate at after three years. 33 to 66% of people will add the weight, will add back more weight than they lost. Um, but only 5% of people lose weight and keep it off past five years. So we want to know what are the habits and the tendencies and, and the, the, the plans that those five percenters did and how we can get our patients to do that and implement that. So that'll be the goal of this talk. So, of course, everyone looks at energy intake. If you eat too much, it stores as fat. If you expend more, uh, you end up... Um, burning calories. Um, while it is this simple, it's also not that simple. There's so many different hormonal and psychological issues at play. If it was this easy, we could have solved this a long time ago, but clearly um, there's more to it than that. So I wanted to show the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, this is basically your confidence versus competence uh, graph. A lot of people will watch one Netflix documentary or read one book on diet or exercise or read one study or, you know, look up one thing or watch one YouTube video and think they know everything about weight loss and everything about obesity and they think they have all the answers. And then they realize as time goes on and they get smarter um, and they learn more that they really uh, don't know that much. It's a very complicated issue. And like I said, I've, I've read almost every book ever published and every study ever published on weight loss over the last 20 years that I've been doing this. And I've come to some great conclusions, at least I feel, and I could be wrong. I mean, a lot of this 
um, we're still learning and trying to figure out, but there are some things that we, we know now that are very, very um, helpful. So just as a quick survey, um, what is more important in determining your body composition? Is it diet or exercise? Just by a show of hands, raise your hands. Who thinks diet is more important? Okay, good. That's about 60% of the crowd. Who feels that exercise is more important than diet? Okay, good. That's what I was expecting, about 30%. So it's split you know, more towards the diet. And that's really good because if you look at all the studies that they've done, diet is far more uh, important than exercise. Exercise is about 3% of weight loss, while diet uh, is 97%. You might have heard, you know, heard this in many different ways. You can't ex out-exercise a bad diet. You can't outrun a bad diet, you, you know, things like that, which is very much true. And we'll get into the details of that um, later on. So exercise and energy expenditure uh, is on a 10 to 20% of total energy expenditure. So if we look at men and women, the basic metabolic rate is set here. And this is something you really can't change much over time other than um, by how many calories you eat. Um, the more calories you eat, the more your BMR goes up. The less you eat, the more it goes down. So you can adjust that with um, food intake. Energy expended breaking down food is minimal. And then the energy expended from actual physical activity is also um, very minimal. Um, it, it doesn't add up to a lot of calories, and, and we'll talk about why. So, so mainly what we're trying to get at is you cannot um, adjust your calories out or energy expenditure very much. You can, um, just not very much. So your basic metabolic rate is about 70% of your total daily energy expenditure. Non-exercise activity thermogenesis, this is like all the fidgeting, moving, walking, sitting up, sitting down, moving your hands while you're talking, that's about 15% of your total daily energy expenditure. Thermic effect of food, this is the amount of energy you need to break down food, is about 10%. And then the exercise activity thermogenesis, which is you actually lifting weights, running on, running on a treadmill, exercising, whatever it is, is about 5%. And you can look at this slide um, in detail uh, later. You can just pause the video um, or, or, you know, look at it when you download the slides. Um, also, any studies that I quote in here are either right on the slide or if you click on the notes um, in the PDF file or PowerPoint, you will see them at the bottom. Um, so as an example, calorie expenditure, 30 minutes of exercise. If you look at aerobic dance, moderate cycling, circuit training, etc., about, you know, running, basketball game, if, uh, if you have a 200, let's say, let's say you're a 140-pound person, you will burn 540 calories uh, running, 543, um, at about a 7-minute mile. If you're running a 10-minute mile, it's about 389. Um, if you're playing soccer, it's about 389. Walking, swimming, also in the 300s. The least, um, on this chart at least, is walking three, 3 miles per hour, which is 130. If you weigh more, if you weigh 220 pounds, obviously those numbers go up. You can burn 1,286 calories running a 7-minute mile, but obviously it's more difficult to do at 220 pounds. But this is just uh, an example. So let's say you want to burn off a pound per week, which is 3,500 kilocal uh, calories, which you need to burn. So let's say Monday you do strength training for 45 minutes, you burn off 826 calories. You walk at 3 miles an hour for 15 minutes. You burn off another 152. Um, Wednesday, you do something similar, and then the next day, something similar. It adds up to 2934, which is still not the 3,500 a week that you need to burn one pound per week. So it's, it's almost um, fruitless to count on exercise alone 
to burn the amount of calories you need to actually burn a pound per week. And the studies have shown this over time, and we'll go over a bunch of them. So here's a study, a three-month randomized uh, controlled study, which recruited 43 overweight or obese adolescent boys, 12 to 18 years old, who were physically inactive, which was quantified as no participation in structured uh, physical activity over the uh, previous three months, except school phys, phys ed classes. All subjects were asked to follow weight maintenance and diet during the three-month intervention period to determine the ex effects of exercise without calorie restriction. Subjects were split into three groups, aerobic exercise, resistance training, or control. Um, and after, and if you look at the, the part I highlighted, after three months, exercise had very little impact on weight loss. Um, the control group actually gained 2.6 pounds plus or minus 2.6 kilograms plus or minus one. The aerobic exercise group lost 0.04 plus or minus 0.8. The resistance training group lost 0.6 kilograms plus or minus 0.8. So after three months, it really didn't change. Um, their weight a whole lot. Another study where they recruited 65 adults who completed an exercise protocol, which they were randomly assigned to one of two exercise groups, aerobic exercise or combined aerobic and resistance exercise. And the conclusion of the 12 weeks, the aerobic group lost 3.7 kilograms of weight and the aerobic plus resistance lost 3.8 kilograms of body weight, which although statistically significant, is less than nine pounds. So even with a rigorous program for 12 weeks, most participants lost somewhere in the neighborhood of about nine pounds. Now, that's not bad, don't get me wrong, but if you weigh 280 pounds or 300 pounds, that's, that's not a lot, but it is a start, and we want people to start somewhere, so I'm not discouraging that but it's much easier to create a calorie deficit with actually with actual calorie restriction than actually just trying to walk it off or run it off or lift it off. Another study, 16 months with 74 participants aged 17 through 35 were assigned to either a control group um, or an exercise group. All participants were previously sedentary and did not expend more than 500 calories of physical activity per week. The exercise was a treadmill from 20 minutes to 45 minutes, and they just made it you know, harder and harder each time. And they did this over 16 months without having the, the, the participants change their caloric intake. They could eat whatever they want. At the conclusion of the study, the men in the exercise group had lost only 5.2 kilograms, um, while the women lost 0.4 kilograms of body weight, which is still very, very minimal. And like I said, if you click on the notes under the PDF that you download, you'll see all the studies um, there. Uh, Meta-analysis found the mean weight loss of men who completed 30 weeks of exercise was a measly 2.6 kilograms. Women compared similarly on average lo losing 3 kilograms over a course of 14 weeks. That was a study by Garrow. Um, so ultimately what we're trying to point out is that you can exercise and it will cause some weight loss but just not enough. And you really need to focus um, on the other aspects like the diet. Um, another study here, the effects of anti-obesity drugs, diet, and exercise on weight loss maintenance after a very low-calorie diet or low-calorie diet. This was a systematic review. Um, they took people, um, they put them either on a really low-calorie uh, diet or uh, a low-calorie diet. And conclusion was anti-obesity drugs, meal replacements, and high-protein diets were associated with improved weight loss maintenance after a very low-calorie diet or low-calorie diet period, whereas no significant improvements were seen for dietary supplements and exercise. So the exercise didn't make a difference, um, neither did any dietary supplements. However, 
Um, if you were on a low-calorie diet, that seemed uh, to make a difference, and you can read uh, the details. So the other thing we found over time is that exercise helps you not gain weight back that you've already lost. And this is something we've known for quite some time. But what exercise is very good at doing is helping prevent you from gaining weight back that you've previously lost. Here's a um, study that, that was published in 2009. Regular exercise attenuates the metabolic drive to regain weight after long-term weight loss. Um, I highlighted this part here in the abstract. Exercise decreased the rate of regain early in relapse and lowered the defended body weight. So your body, your body tries to defend your body weight. If you exercise, it will lower that weight and it will help you not regain um, fat back as much. So um, another st study here, beneficial effects of exercise shifting the focus from body weight to other markers of health. So um, they, they looked at um, trying to see, well, let's not focus on weight loss. Let's see if, you know, people feel better or their blood pressure gets better or their cholesterol gets better, their weight, waist circumference improves. And the conclusion was the data demonstrates that significant and meaningful health benefits can be achieved even in the presence of lower than expected exercise-induced weight loss. Less successful reduction in body weight does not undermine the beneficial effects of aerobic exercise. Um, from a public health perspective, exercise should be encouraged and the emphasis on weight loss reduced. So what, what, what we're saying is that if you do exercise aerobically, you will lower your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your insulin resistance, your diabetes gets better. All of those things improve. You just please don't expect to lose a whole lot of weight from it. Like, you know, reduce your expectations in terms of how much weight you're actually going to lose. But all of your cardiovascular risk factors will improve and will get better. So the next study was uh, from 2014, Diet or Exercise Interventions versus Combined Behavioral Weight Management Programs, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Direct Comparisons. Programs based on physical activity alone are less effective than combined uh, behavioral weight management programs in both the short term and long term. So uh, this study also found that it's, it's very difficult with exercise alone uh, to cause significant uh, weight loss. So this next study was 2009, Long-Term Effectiveness of Diet Plus Exercise Interventions versus Diet-Only Interventions for Weight Loss and Meta-Analysis. In this study, I highlighted this part, even in the studies that showed that exercise plus diet worked, it was only a 0.5 to 1.14 kilogram weight loss over two years. That's like one, maybe two pounds at the most. So even in the studies that showed some weight loss, it really wasn't a whole lot. Now imagine most of our patients, they're like 200 or more pounds and they lose one or two pounds over two years because they started exercising. So that, that's really not that helpful. So we really want to get to a point um, where we put patients on a program that's actually going to work and actually going to give them results so that they're encouraged and can keep going. So... The next study here is a meta-analysis, the effect of dietary counseling for weight loss. Conclusions, I highlighted this part here. You can read the rest of it. Dietary counseling interventions produce modest weight loss that diminish over time. So when you're counseling these patients and they met with the nutritionist and were told what to do and what not to do, they did lose weight, but then as time went on and they didn't meet with the nutritionist or, or counselor anymore, um, those uh, improvements uh, regressed and they, they eventually gained back some of the weight. 
another study here from 2005, Long-Term Weight Loss After Diet and Exercise, a Systematic Review. The conclusion on this one, diet associated with exercise results in significant and clinically meaningful weight loss. Um, this is partially sustained after a year. So in this study, it did show that when you exercise but also do diet, that you can lose weight, and it was sustained even uh, after a year. Here's a graph that I really like to, to show. Um, they took uh, people and they had, a, they had a control group to see how much weight they lost. They had a calorie restriction with exercise group and they lost about eight pounds. They had a group that was calorie restriction only, this orange line. They also lost about eight pounds, or actually kilograms, not pounds. And then a very low calorie diet group, which lost about 11 kilograms. So adding in the exercise did not really cause that much more weight loss. If you look at this uh, study, it was published in the Journal of American Medical Association. The calorie restriction group and the calorie with exercise group both lost about eight, pound, eight kilograms. And so there really wasn't like a whole lot uh, of difference. So the, the key and the point that I'm trying to drive home is let's not focus um, so much on exercise. It has a tremendous amount of benefits, but it's just not as crucial for weight loss. It has to do with the actual diet. So the other um, thing I wanted to point out is that physical activity is not on this like uh, continuum. Um, total daily energy expenditure does not go up the more activity you do. So if you run on a treadmill for 30 minutes and it says you lost 100 uh, calories or burned 100 calories, if you stay on there for 30 hours, you're not going to lose. You're not going to burn 30,000 calories. It's just, it's just not uh, possible. Your body adapts and starts burning less and less um, calories. So if you read what the slide says here, it's really not a simple or linear. Uh, effect. And the more you exercise, the more calories you burn. That's not true. There is a bit of a cap to it. If you look at this graph, you start running on the treadmill. The first 30 minutes or so, you burn 100 calories. But then after that's kind of capped, and you're really not going to burn that much more. There's a it's a, called the constrained model of total energy expenditure, where you only um, burn uh, energy. You only burn as much energy as your body could. And they've and they've tested this. Um, over time, and I'll move to the next slide here. They've tested this over time where they put people on the masks and they put them on a treadmill and they measure your, your calories uh, burned, they measure your CO2, they see exactly how many calories you're burning. The first time you run three miles or you run a 5K, sure, you burn 300 calories. You do it again the next day, it might be 250. The next day it's less and less and less to the point where you're barely burning uh, 40 or 50 calories each time your body um, adapts to that uh, very, very well. So you, you want to make sure that um, you're not depending on exercise only uh, to create the calorie deficit that you need. So in this slide is kind of a conclusion about exercise. The amount of exercise you'd have to do to lose weight is time prohibitive. Burning an extra 500 calories per day would require jogging for five or six miles per day that may take up to 90 minutes for most people, and some of my patients could never even imagine doing that. I mean, we have patients that just cannot run or jog because they're extremely overweight, their joints hurt, their, their neck pain, so you cannot do that. And then you get home and you drink a Gatorade and you put back 300 calories, so, so definitely don't do that. Um, but some conclusions, exercise is, is good for keeping lost weight off, but will not help you lose that much weight. 
Um, eating less and healthier is the key. Exercise can suppress and or increase appetite in some people. So some, some patients will say, well, when I exercise, I want to eat more. Some patients will say, when I exercise, I want to eat less. So that kind of depends uh, on the person. Exercise can activate the fight or flight response and puts the rest digest system on hold. Um, which can ramp up your metabolism and make you hungrier. It does lower cardiovascular mortality significantly. And in, in conclusion, really, exercise alone is ineffective for weight loss. One last graph. They, the projected weight loss for a 200-pound man was 60 minutes of running four days per week. He weighs 200 pounds. At the end of it, he weighs 195. This is by, by day uh, 30. Um, and it's really not a lot. So um, what we want to do is, is try to get people on the right track and, 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 and take their mind off of that. Um, exercise improves cardiovascular mortality, lowers blood pressure, LDL, blood sugar, increases HDL, prevents weight regain, can increase hunger, activates compensatory mechanisms, uh, but does not cause significant weight loss. But it can add to it and help. Um, mortality, this was published in the uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology, 2014. Running at even a slow pace for 5 to 10 minutes, just one or two times per week, decreases cardiovascular mortality by 45%. And this is like really slow. These are people that are running like 2 to 3.5 miles per hour, not even, like barely even breaking a sweat. Doing it every day reduces cardiovascular mortality by 50%, and it reduced all-cause mortality by 29%. So the chance of you walking outside and getting hit by a truck even decreased by 29%. So this was an excellent study. I don't want you guys to go home and say, well, the cardiologist said we don't need to work out and don't need to exercise. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. Um, exercise does a lot of incredible things, but if you want your patients to lose weight, you got to counsel them on, uh, properly. So do the commercial programs work or just cost a lot of money? These are like your Nutrisystem and Jenny Craig and those kind of things. They did look this, uh, review this in 2005. The part I highlighted, with the exception of one trial of Weight Watchers, the evidence to support the use of major commercial and self-help weight loss programs was suboptimal. Um, do dietary supplements work? I think you guys kind of know the answer to this one, being that you're all doctors here. The conclusion to this study in 2014 uh, they do not enhance weight loss attempts. So back to where we are now. So is it just a matter of calories in versus calories out? They call that SECO or KIKO, uh, calories in, calories out. Um, we'll get to the uh, answer to that. So a lot of people say you are what you eat. And, and this is true. If you're eating 3,000 calories a day, you're going to weigh what a 3,000 calorie a day uh, person should weigh. So just a random question to the crowd. How many of you exercise? Okay, good. So you you guys are all actually quite healthy. And, and I would expect that in a group of physicians, especially primary care physicians, you guys are all um, active. You, 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 know, you practice what you preach. So that's really good. What kind of exercises do you guys do? Running, okay. Swimming, good. CrossFit, excellent. Weights, resistance training, excellent. All right, good. So, so basically, back to this conclusion, 97% can be achieved with diet alone. Exercise is good for your health, cardiovascular health, but not necessary for weight loss. So the one thing I always tell doctors, don't say diet and exercise. Like a lot of my patients come and say, well, you said diet and exercise. 
it's not diet and exercise. It's just diet. The exercise is a supplement and gets you healthier and can help in other ways. But really, it's our fault. It's doctor's faults because we always say diet and exercise, diet and exercise. There's no patient that I've ever seen counseled that someone didn't say diet and exercise together. The exercise part is not that important for just weight loss. It's important for other things, but not for weight loss. If you want your patients to lose weight, you should really, really focus on diet and sit down with them and explain that to them. So what kind of exercise? This question always comes up. Um, So a treadmill, assuming you weigh 200 pounds, if you walk or jog for three miles, you'll burn about 300 calories, kind of depends on the person. That's really not a lot. That's one plain bagel with cheese from Panera. A person who weighs 200 pounds and does squats for two minutes straight, nonstop, burns about 320 calories. That's only two minutes of resistance training. Um, Even if you're a fast runner and you run three miles in, let's say, 40 minutes, that's only two minutes versus 40 minutes. Um, And even if you're not putting up any weight on the squats or just using your body weight, you will burn 320 calories. So it's your choice. You can either uh, run for three miles, do squats for two minutes, or not eat that uh, plain bagel with cheese. Um, So in terms of exercise, weights and resistance training is much more effective than running on a treadmill. Um, Explosive runs and sprints are also very good. Um, And it's especially true for for women and people with low metabolism. Weights and resistance training is something that almost everyone can do. Running is a highly specialized skill, and a lot of people get hurt doing it because they think all you got to do is just show up and start running or jogging. They have foot imbalances and ankle mobility issues and hip issues, and you end up really hurting yourself more than helping. And we definitely don't want that. But weights, you can start out very low. Um, and just slowly increase it over time and and you'll improve and you'll get better. So I always tell people lift weights to burn calories. It is true, it's still not a whole lot of calories, um, but it's definitely um, a significant amount of calories and can help you with your, your weight loss goals. So weight training versus cardio, this question always comes up um, a lot uh, at this talk, so I decided to make a slide for it. Um, anyone can lift weight. Not everyone can run or swim. So that's one thing I always tell people. I mean, you, you reach down and pick things up every day or you lift things over your head every day. The one thing that's really nice about weight training is it increases your BMR for every one pound Uh, of muscle that you put on, you burn about 60 calories more a day. So if you put on about five pounds, you're looking at about 300 calories a day more that you could eat or increases your BMR by 300 more kilocals. Um, It obviously improves your strength, it improves your mobility, improves your quality of life, improves your body composition, you're burning fat, you're you're leaner, you have more muscle, your body looks nicer, and it improves your functionality. You're able to do a whole lot more um, faster and, and better. Um, and especially with our geriatric patient population, um, improving functionality and quality of life and mobility is huge. I mean, they're, they're not going to be squatting two, 300 pounds, but they want to be able to sit down on a chair and get up from a chair. So that's huge. So this is just a graphic here. Um, the key to losing fat is lifting weights. Um, when somebody just diet does a diet and cardio only, they look really thin, their body fat goes down, but their muscle mass goes down too. Your body adapts to endurance training or cardio training and you lose muscle. Someone who diets and uh, lift weights, you look um, really lean and muscular. Your muscle mass goes up and your body fat levels go down. That's usually um, the, what we want. That's called a body recomposition when you gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. Um, here's just another illustration of something very similar. Um, she's 150 pounds, 35% body fat. She was obsessed with calories and cardio, very restrictive diet. 
Whereas her friend here is 150 pounds but only 20% body fat. She's stronger. She's strength training and eating a higher protein diet um, with moderate carbs and fats. So um, this just kind of illustrates uh, the differences in what, what you can achieve if you are on the uh, proper program. So exercise prescription, this is something I don't know if you do with your patients or not. Um, it should include cardio and resistance training uh, in the beginning. Um, you definitely want your patients to get their cardiovascular health up, which initially will definitely stimulate their metabolism and improve their cardiovascular mortality. You want to start at an appropriate intensity. Some of our older patients, they just can't do uh, what the younger ones can. Um, you want to start out with more cardio in the beginning. Tell them, you know what, just get on the treadmill for five minutes a day. The next day, add a few more minutes. The next day, add a few more minutes till you're up to about 40, 50 minutes a day. Um, over time, you want to transition them more to resistance training. Now that their cardiovascular endurance is better, they've improved their metabolism, they've improved their insulin resistance, um, transition to, to weights, um, increase the weights over time. You don't want to always be like lifting 20 pounds. You want to, you know, get to 25 and 30 and whatever. Um, and then adapt over time. As they get old, as they get stronger and stronger, you want to keep adding more uh, to their programs and they can Im improve uh, their programs. So here's a graphic of, you know, with low intensity cardio versus moderate intensity cardio versus high intensity cardio. This debate always comes up. At very low intensity cardio, your heart rate's above 100, but not over 130, somewhere in the 115 to 125 range. You're burning mostly fat. Um, as you crank it up and you start uh, doing higher and higher intensity cardio, like HIIT training, um, you will be burning more uh, energy from your carbohydrate metabolism, um, which is fine. You you could burn more total calories in in general, but this this is a you know th those people that get on the treadmill and just walk slowly at two to three four miles an hour, and they're just doing low intensity, um, low speed cardio. That's fine. They'll they'll they will be burning fat. It's just very slow, and you want to kind of save cardio um, to the end for for someone who's a, a physique athlete. This is another graphic that kind of shows the same thing. Low intensity, you're burning um, uh, more fat. And the longer you, you uh, do it, um, the more likely you are to, to rely on fat or carbs. This kind of just uh, shows that over time. So is it just a matter of calories in versus calories out? Um, my answer is no, it's just calories in. There's not a whole lot we can do to affect calories out. Sure, you can exercise, you can lift, you can run. That will affect your calories out slightly. Uh, but the one part that we need, we can affect tremendously is calories in. So we really want to try to affect calories in as much as possible. And we'll start to get into that now. So here's a study that I'd like to always bring up, 2007, fat loss depends on energy deficit only, independent of the method for weight loss. So a lot of people ask, well, um, what works? And here's the background. The study was designed to compare the effects of two different but isocaloric fat reduction programs with the same amount of energy deficit, diet alone or diet combined with aerobic training on body composition, lipid profile, cardiorespiratory fitness, and or and in non or moderately obese women. The final conclusions, the study showed that independent of the method for weight loss, the negative energy balance alone is responsible for weight reduction. So that's kind of like a conclusion to everything that we've been talking about. The exercise you will affect you somewhat, but regardless of how much exercise you do, the calorie deficit alone um, is what affects 
uh, weight loss. So please, 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 if you take anything away from this, it's the diet alone, the calorie, the deficit alone that affects weight loss. So what happens when you have more muscle? Um, and this is why I want patients to lift weights. I mean, sure, they could just diet and lose a bunch of fat, but they also lose weight, which is muscle. Um, more muscle protects against cardiovascular mortality. There's been a lot of studies that have shown this, and we'll go through some of them. Protects against cancer, protects against chronic illness. Patients that are on ventilators and sick in the ICU do better the more muscle mass they have and the leaner they are. And you want to... Uh, lift weights to burn uh, calories. So let's talk diet, and I'm just going to fly through this. It's not, you know, you've all seen this. Back in 1943, this is kind of what they recommended back then, that there's seven basic food groups and you should eat a little bit of each. 1992, they turned it into a pyramid with grains on the bottom, fruits and vegetables, and then protein and poultry here, and then at the top, fats, oils, and sweets. Um, in 2005, Kind of the same thing, but they added a guy running because they want to encourage activity, a guy running up the stairs at the top. You'll see fats and oils are also like really small here, dairy, you know, meats and beans, grains, vegetables are all kind of equal. 2010, they decided to change to my plate where it's still kind of broken up similarly, but they figure if you divide this up this way, um, it's kind of more visual and, and you'll, you'll be healthier. Um, unfortunately, these are all great and they could work if you're in a calorie deficit, but the problem is the foods that we have nowadays are so hyper palatable that no matter what, people are just going to eat and eat and eat. So we got to try uh, to, to um, stress that you have to eat less no matter what. So previous diets, we've all seen the portion control diets like Weight Watchers, Zone Diet. We have these prepared food diets like Nutrisystem and Jenny Craig. They'll send you your food and now there's other ones. There's the low-carb, high-protein diets like the Atkins, the South Beach, which was by Dr. Agaston. The keto diet now is a variation of this. We have these liquid and fad diets like the cabbage soup diet and, you know, the collagen protein diet and drink-only-water diet. Sure, that can work. Um, the Mediterranean diet, which is a very balanced diet and the most proven, and we'll go through some of that. Um, there's these raw food kind of diets like the paleo diet. If it, if it was back in the paleo times, then you can eat it. The hallelujah or God diet where if God created it like plants and vegetables, you should eat it. But if it's processed in any way, then don't. Same thing with cavemen. If it was available to cavemen, then you can eat it. Glycemic index type diets, intermittent fasting, elimination diets, you know, the whole 30 type stuff or the Tom Brady 12 type stuff. Um, Almost all diets will work for some time. Like, you know, if you do it, if you do any of these, they will work. And I'm, I'm and I have patients that have tried almost every diet known to man. Um, they do work. Um, but the question is for how long and, 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 and can you keep doing this forever? That's kind of what it comes down to. So this is kind of a funny graphic that you see online all the time. If you look at all the names of these diets, low carb, keto, low fat, intermittent fasting, Weight Watchers, Paleo, whatever, here's a short description of the diet and then how it works by creating calorie deficit, calorie deficit, calorie deficit, calorie deficit, all of them work by somehow tricking you, uh, or gimmicking you into a calorie deficit. Uh, which which is fine. It, it does work. And if it works for you, then great, you can use it. But we want to direct our patients and get them onto something that they can kind of do forever, not just for 10 minutes or a few months. Um, the glycemic index, you guys kind of heard about this. I'm sure you all know this. There are some foods that really spike your insulin 
Um, when you eat them, white sugar, white bread, beer, baked potatoes, sugary drinks, pasta, rice, stuff like that, there are some things that really don't spike your sugar. Um, non-starchy vegetables, broccoli, asparagus, spinach, you know, things like that, blueberries, anything like that. There's stuff kind of in between, multigrain, breads, pita, rye, etc., wild rice. Um, so that some people think if you eat really low glycemic index things and you don't cause your insulin to spike, then you won't put on weight. Um, we'll kind of get into this, but the, the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity has been debunked. They found that whether you eat high glycemic index foods or low glycemic index foods, if you are in a calorie deficit, then it doesn't matter. You will lose weight and all your inflammatory markers and health markers will improve. Um, this is just a quick thing about the uh, Mediterranean diet. Um, 2014 of all the studies uh, of all the diets they've ever studied um, they found that the one of the healthiest diets is this very balanced kind of Mediterranean diet you guys know what the Mediterranean diet is or like what it consists of a lot of people say oh just do a Mediterranean diet but no one ever really wants to say what it is yeah so lean meats beans fruits and vegetables whole grains things like that and and, and you got to eat this in moderation obviously um, Mediterranean diet, here's another uh, study, the Mediterranean diet pattern for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Um, it has shown to reduce cardiovascular disease, and, and it's very good at that if, it, if followed correctly. They have like olive oils and those kind of things in it. Um, another study from 2013, Mediterranean diet and cardiovascular disease, historical perspective and latest evidence. It causes, a, and I highlighted this part, significant reduction in new cancers and overall mortality. So not only does it improve your cardiovascular risk factors, it reduces um, about 10 different kinds of cancers as well. A randomized trial comparing low-fat and low-carbohydrate diets matched for energy and protein. This is a really good one, 2004. Um, basically what this shows is that, and I highlighted this part, our results show no significant weight loss, lipid serum, insulin, or glucose differences between the two diets. So whether you ate a diet um, that was low fat or low carb or whatever it is, as long as you match it for total calories and you match it for protein intake, then it really doesn't matter um, what else you eat. And we'll kind of go through that later on uh, when we get to actually setting up your diet and your macronutrients and all that. But if you're in a calorie deficit and you eat enough protein, the rest doesn't really matter. You can eat as many you know, whatever combination of fats and carbs that you want. Um, so this is a study here um, that they did where they starved people and then fed them. Um, and they found when, they, when people were in semi-starvation, um, they lost a lot of fat as well as a lot of lean mass. But then when they started refeeding them, they gained back a little bit of lean mass, uh, but their fat mass went way up. So people, when they were allowed to eat more, gained back more fat than uh, lean mass. And, and they found that over time, this was back in 1950s, more recently, I'll show you a couple more. More recently, they found this to be true. The more you yo-yo diet, you lose weight, you lose a bunch of lean mass, gain back mostly fat, lose more lean mass, gain back even more fat. The more you do that, uh, the worse and worse it becomes. Here's a study they've done where somebody goes on a diet, they drop their calories, um, they lower their metabolic rate, lower their lean body mass, their fat mass, they get really nice and thin. They start re-eating again and refeeding. their calories goes up, their metabolic rate goes up, lean body mass goes up, but their fat mass goes up way more than before. And they've actually studied this in mice too, where you diet, then regain, then diet, then regain. They've actually found that the um, 
the rate of loss in the first diet is one time, then the rate of regain is twice that. Then when you try to diet down again, it's only half of what it was, so it gets harder to lose weight. But then when you regain it back, it's three times the rate of the original regain. So yo-yo dieting, um, whether it's in humans or rats, shows that you will put back on more uh, weight than you started with. And the, the latest studies show that you actually form new adipose tissues. We used to think that your adipose tissues are static and don't change, but now we found that when you lose a bunch of weight and then regain, your body puts on new uh, adipose fat cells. And we definitely uh, don't want that. And we'll go through this and how we can break the cycle of fat loss and regain to, to improve. So why do diets fail? Uh, there's so many reasons. I mean, patients over the years and myself and just, just studies have been done. Um, a lot of people don't want to count calories or they're expensive. They're, they're eating carnivore diet and they're only eating, you know, ribeye steaks and all that. It's super expensive. They're difficult to follow. Like you got to count points or add them up. They're unhealthy, like, you know, eating all fat. Um, it's not a good fit for you. You can't take someone that, you know, is older and doesn't have a smartphone and try to get them to download an app and track calories. It's just not going to work. It's not a good fit for them. Um, you're also fighting against your set point. Your body wants to weigh 180 pounds. That's what it's weighed for the last 20 years. You're trying to get it to go higher or lower. It's very difficult. Um, a lot of times people lose interest after they plateau or their body adapts. So let's say, you know, you cut your calories, you get down to 180 or 170, your body has adapted to this new calorie count and you kind of get stuck and you don't know what to do. You plateau and you really have no idea what to do. We'll talk about that uh, in a little bit here. Um, the other reason is the calories are too low. You cannot take a 350 pound patient and tell them to eat 1200 calories and say, okay, go. Yeah, you'll lose weight initially. That 300-pound patient will lose a few pounds here and there until their body adapts to the 1,200 calories, and then they're stuck. Now they weigh 275, and they're eating 1,200 calories, and now what do you do? So we definitely don't want to get into a situation where the calories are way too low, and you have you force your patients to adapt into such a low calorie count that it's unsustainable, and they'll never get to where, where they want to be. Um, this is a book by Harvard professor, um, Dr. George Blackburn, he studied obesity forever. It's a good book. I, I don't like uh, his final conclusions, but he talks about your set point. Um, and, and that part is very good. There's a set point that your body has, which um, he, he argues that, um, well, he spent 35 years of research on weight loss and it took him four and a half years to write that book. Um, he says that your body has a set point. And the only way to break your set point is that you need to lose about 10% of your body weight and do it slowly and then keep that steady for six months and then repeat and repeat and just lose weight slowly, which is true. If you lose weight very slowly, you can circumvent the metabolic adaptation um, and your body will reset to a new lower set point, but, it, but it's a lot more complicated than that. He was actually one of the inventors of the original formula for slim fast shakes. Um, there was a Vermont prison experiment in 1964. It's very, very famous. Um, unfortunately, it's unethical. Well, fortunately, it's unethical to do experiments on inmates now, but they were allowed to do this back then, and they took half the inmates and they overfed them and half the inmates and they underfed them. Some the, the underfed lost weight and the overfed gained weight, then they kind of just left them alone. They all went back to their original weight. And that's kind of another way that they uh, understood the set point mechanism where your body likes to try to keep everything the same. There was another study called the Minnesota Starvation Study that Dr. Ansel Keys did. Um, 
he the, the, he was experimenting kind of with like Hollywood stars that wanted to lose a bunch of weight really fast. Um, it's difficult to lose a lot of weight over a short period of time. The body will rebel and bad outcomes occur, which is kind of what we know. If you want to lose 30 pounds in 12 weeks for a wedding, that's really, really difficult and unhealthy to do. And we don't recommend um, that anyone uh, does that. So Dr. Blackburn um, and all the studies have shown that your weight is set by about age 18, you know, somewhere around 16, 17 um, for females and about 18 or 19 for men. So right around when you become an adult, your, your weight is set. Most people gain about one pound per year from ages 20 to 50. Um, the body works really, and that's considered normal, um, the body works really, really hard to protect itself from quick short-term weight gain and weight loss. The body has all these protective mechanisms to prevent you from gaining weight quickly and losing weight quickly. Um, and this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to lose weight. Um, men have a slightly higher metabolic rate than women, so it's a little bit easier for them to lose weight. Uh, most people when they lose weight, lose weight from the top down. You lose it kind of like in your face, shoulders, chest, and then eventually in your abdomen and your thighs and butt. Um, and then you gain it back in the reverse order. That For men, that most stubborn weight to lose is like right around that lower ab, abs area. Um, for women, it can be like kind of in the lower back or, or hips and thighs. Um, but a lot of times it isn't. It is like like in men in the lower abdominal area. So the biggest problem now is the fight to uh, maintain. The biggest battle in weight loss is the fight to keep it off. A lot of people have lost weight successfully. I have a lot of patients, they'll lose a bunch of weight, but then they regain it. Um, and the problem with that is something called metabolic adaptation. And that's what we're going to talk about mostly because metabolic adaptation changes a lot, a lot of things. Um, so what is metabolic adaptation? It's your total daily energy expenditure or your resting metabolic rate or your basic metabolic rate. It goes way down and it can stay down for a very, very long time. Um, even years, like the, the people in the Biggest Loser contestants, they they, re, they looked at them six years later and their BMR is still depressed because they did so much exercise in those three months and they ate so few calories. Their BMR went way, way down and they, it never really recovered. Six years later, it was still super, super low. Um, humans are genetically programmed. Oh, metabolic adaptation is a genetically programmed self-defense mechanism to ward off starvation and enhance weight gain and storage and reduces the chance of future diet success and enhances future weight regain. So the problem with metabolic adaptation is it makes it very difficult to lose weight, um, but it makes it easier to regain weight. Um, in the future. So if you lose a bunch of weight now and you suddenly start eating more, your body jumps on that opportunity and wants to gain weight really, really quickly and fast. Um, there is about a buffer of calories of about two, two to 300. So if you need to eat about 2,000 calories to maintain your current weight, plus or minus two to 300 on either side of that will keep you about the same. If one day you ate 2,300, you're fine. The next day you ate 1,700, you're fine. Or if you start eating 2,300 continuously, you're probably going to be fine. Um, if you start eating 1,800 continuously, you're probably going to stay the same too. There is that buffer. Um, your body reduces NEAT, which is your non-energy, uh, your non-exercise your non activity thermogenesis, which is all of the activity you do throughout the day um, that is not exercise. So you'll, you'll notice you'll start doing less steps. You won't fidget as much. You'll kind of lay down more. You'll rest. Your body will want you to sleep more. Your body can buffer your calories by upping or reducing NEAT. 
So the keys to fat loss, and this is the most important part, um, and like I said, all of the studies and everything is in the notes. If it's not already on the slide, just click on notes and it should be there. Um, you want to keep your calories as high as possible while still in the deficit. So if you're eating 1,800 calories and you're losing weight, don't lower it. Just leave it until you stop losing weight. You want slow, sustained weight loss to protect your lean mass. The slower, the better. If you lose weight very, very slowly, you won't lose muscle. But if you try to crash diet and reduce your calories to super low, you'll lose a lot of lean mass. We don't want to lose weight. We want to lose fat only. Um, the way to do that is keep your calories as high as possible. Um, eat enough protein, which we'll get into and then lose weight slowly. So be in a calorie deficit that's just enough to cause uh, weight loss and then stay in it as long as you can. <clears throat> the, other, uh, the other thing you want to do is don't lower your fat too much because it will decrease testosterone and other hormones, whether it's men and women, and you need that uh, to lose fat and build muscle. Don't crash diet. You could lose 30 pounds in three months, or even one month, but that's a crash diet, and, and I can guarantee you, you're not losing just fat. You're losing a lot, um, even bone density, uh, muscle mass, lots of things. You definitely need to be in a calorie deficit. That's not even a question. That's non-negotiable. You have to be in a calorie deficit. You have to keep your protein as high as possible. Now, for most men, we recommend one gram per pound of body weight. So if you're about 200 pounds or more, um, we recommend about 0.7 to 1.1 or 1.2 um, grams of protein per pound of body per pound of lean body weight. So for most men, you're looking at about 160 to 180 grams of protein. If you're really tall and lean and have a lot more lean body mass, then it could be 200 or 220. For most women, you're looking at about 110 to 130 grams of protein a day. Um, you want to strength train hard. Um, the, the signal when you lift weights, you signal your body to maintain muscle mass. You want to keep that signal very, very strong. If you stop lifting weights, your body will think, oh, we don't really need the muscle, it costs more, it's not efficient, and we need to drop muscle so that we can keep living. It's much more efficient on this calorie count if we lose muscle. So don't do that. Keep lifting weights, keep protein high so you can maintain your muscle. You have to do refeeds um, and or diet breaks. Um, a refeed is, is, a, is like, you know, every six weeks seven weeks or so you're not losing weight anymore you're tired you're exhausted you're not feeling good take a diet break it's a little bit longer than a refeed um, a diet break would be where you go for like a week or two weeks at maintenance calories let's say you're eating about 1800 2200 maintains go back up to 2200 for like two weeks let your bmr come up let your body kind of reset and get stronger and then go back to your 18 or 1900 so you can start losing again refeeds is just like a day or two um, but they can help um the key is keeping weight off. Now, there's a lot of studies on this, and I posted most of them there, but keeping the weight off is the hardest part. You want to pick a diet or a plan that you can adhere to. So sometimes my patients tell me, well, I, I want to do intermittent fasting. I can stick to it. Well, fine, you can do that. As long as it's not something dangerous, I let them pick what they want. As long as they you know, keep their calories in check and keep their protein high, the, the rest really doesn't matter. So they, they have studied the, the five main things um, that lead to long-term sustainability and adherence of a diet. Um, number one is the, the patients or, uh, have some kind of cognitive restraint in some form. Now, if they're counting calories, that's one form of restraint. If they're self-monitoring, I'm sorry, if they are uh, doing intermittent fasting, that's one form of restraint. If they're cutting out sweets or soda or pop, that's one form of restraint. You have to have some kind of like really um, 
awareness or you like cognitive restraint. You have some way, somehow you're cutting calories or doing something to keep you from overeating. Um, the number two thing they found was self-monitoring, whether this is tracking calories, weighing yourself every day, looking in the mirror, some way of holding yourself accountable is really, really huge. The other thing they found is really useful is regular exercise. Not because the exercise is contributing to the weight loss, it's obviously contributing to the weight regain or non-regain, but because it, you formed good habits. If, if while you were losing weight, you were um, exercising every day or a few days a week, then you formed uh, really good habits and you can maintain that. So that's one thing they found that really, really helps. Um, the fourth thing is structured programs. You wake up in the morning at 5 a.m., go to the gym, work out, eat the same exact thing for breakfast. In the afternoon, you do this or after you do that. Like people have a structured program or, or, or something they follow or, or something they really like to do. That makes a huge, huge difference. Um, those people also are very good at sustaining uh, weight loss. Number five, they found people who are able to focus on long-term goals. Um, now, this is really, really important. Um, you, you're not trying to lose weight for the next 10 minutes or the next 10 months. You want to lose weight for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So people who are able to think of those very long-term goals, um, those are people that are able to lose weight uh, and keep it off. And, that, and that's really what we want. We want you to lose weight and keep it off. So what happens when you plateau? Now, this is bound to happen. It's not um, something that you that we question, it is going to happen. You will plateau uh, at some point. Um, so what you want to, what you want to do when you plateau, there's, there's a few things you can do. Um, we talked about like diet breaks and refeeds. Um, but another thing you can do is reduce calories slightly. So you want to lower your fat and carbs just a little bit. Um, you don't want to reduce protein, obviously. And or you can add in a little bit more exercise or a little bit more uh, activity. Um, the other thing you can do is you can lower your carbs and fat by about 5, 10, maybe 15% per day. Keep the protein the same. Increase your activity by about 5, 10, 15%. It might not make a huge difference, but it can help. Um, and this is obviously relative to your current level of activity or relative to your current level uh, of feeding. One of the problems that we have as a society is that our life revolves around food. If you notice, whether there's a wedding or a funeral or a graduation, it seems like no matter what's going on, we are living our lives around food. The second we get to work, someone says, well, what are you eating for lunch? Let's go out to eat. Um, whether it's a funeral or a wedding or, or whatever it might be, parties, birthdays, we eat, whether it's being happy or depressed, we eat, there's emotional eating. I try to teach my patients to have a healthy relationship with food. I want you to eat to live, not live to eat. Um, now, people who have psychological disorders uh, with food, binging, anorexia, those type of things, they definitely need uh, more serious help, and we refer them um, to a proper uh, therapist. We want to develop a healthy uh, relationship with food, and we don't want people to think of like bad food or good food. Food is just food. You're eating enough calories or not enough calories, whatever your goal is, and either to live or maintain your weight or, or gain weight if you want to bulk up, um, which we'll get into later. But you definitely want to focus on developing a very healthy uh, relationship with food. So, 
The next question then becomes, uh, what causes weight gain? Um, there's a lot of things. Do you, do you guys have any idea? Sure, overeating. Uh, yes, insulin, if you're in a calorie surplus, can be a problem, right? But you know that's just the body's normal response to overeating. So on this next slide, we, we have the, the hypothalamus and all the hormones that are related. Um, these hormones, they control your hunger, they control your satiety and homeostasis. Um, insulin, leptin, adiponectin, and ghrelin are all related. And the leaner or more, more adipose tissue you have, the more of these you have. So ghrelin is a hunger hormone. It tells the brain uh, that the stomach is empty. Um, gastric bypass surgery eliminates parts of the stomach that secrete this. Traditional dieting boosts this level. Um, it signals hunger about four hours after your previous meal. So you eat your meal, your stomach is full, um, your ghrelin levels go down. Once your stomach is empty, ghrelin levels go up, and it tells your brain that it's time to eat again. Encredins in the small bowel tell the brain to stop eating. So once food hits your small bowel, you release these little hormones to tell your body to stop eating. Unfortunately, it takes a while for food to get to your small bowel. So I tell a lot of my patients, eat a little bit, wait about 20, 25 minutes, and time it on your watch. And if you're still hungry, go back and eat a little more. Leptin is in your adipose tissue, and it gets secreted and stored there. The more adipose tissue you have, the more leptin you have. It signals to your brain that enough fat has been stored in the body to be able to sustain a pregnancy. People without it are rather large or gigantic. Um, so leptin is in the adipose tissue, and once you have enough body fat, um, then your 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 body will like be signaled to not have to eat anymore. Um, your vagus nerve also, when your stomach stretches, it, your, your vagus nerve sends a signal to your brain to say we're full, um, and it was a target of a lot of the earlier... Uh, medications. So now the million dollar questions, um, before I go to the next slide, which medications cause weight gain? So here's the slide. Unfortunately, almost all classes of medications that we prescribe as physicians, whether you're a cardiologist or a primary care doctor or whatever, all cause weight gain. Um, Diabetes medications, insulin, thylizidones, uh, sulfonylureas, almost all of those do. Antipsychotics like haloperidol, clonazepine, risperidone, quietapine, and lithium. You know, the list is very long. Antidepressants like amitriptyline, imipramine, paroxetine, trazodone, alprazolam, and sertraline um, all as well. Paroxetine, probably the biggest offender in this group. Epilepsy drugs like valproate, carbamazepine, and gabapentin. Steroids, whether it's prednisone or birth control, all cause increased appetite and um, salt water retention as well as fat storage. Blood pressure medications like beta blockers can do it in a number of different ways, which are medications that I prescribe a lot. Antihistamines like ranitidine, diphenhydramine, and cetirizine all can cause it. Opiates, Almost without a doubt, every single one of them uh, causes it. Um, now compare this to medications that cause weight loss. It's a long list as well. Metformin, Simlin, Acarabos, Genuvia, Bieta, Victoza, Aces and Arbs, Norvas, Topamax, Walbutrin, Chemoflagyl, Amiodarone, Hydralazine, Theophylline, Fluoxetine, Adderall, Abilify, Geodon, Sulfasalazine, Caffeine, Acetazolamide, Quinidine, and Amphotericin B. All of these can cause weight loss. Now the problem is, if I go back, a lot of my patients are on some of these and some of these, and so it's kind of weight neutral. 
Um, what the side effects of a lot of these meds are either great, cause you to gain or lose weight, and a lot of our patients end up on both. Now, there are some specific medications that are designed especially for weight loss. I mean, this is their intended purpose, and this is why they were designed, and we'll go through these. You have the Xenical, Adipex, Cosimia, Bontril, Contrave, and Saxenda. There, there were a few others. Some have been taken off the market over the years. Um, you could add Victoza or Saxenda. Well, yeah, Victoza is Saxenda. There it is. Um, in order to use these in Ohio, at least, your BMI has to be over 30 or uh, over 27 with at least one risk factor. Now, most people... Most people will qualify for this, although every once in a while you'll have a patient that wants to be on one that doesn't qualify. You have to be careful with who you prescribe it. Some of these medications in Ohio are highly restricted where you can only be on it for three months and then off of it for six months before you go back on it. Xenical is one of the uh, older ones. It's actually available over-the-counter, too, called Ally. It prevents fat absorption in your gut. The side effects are loose stool, obviously, diarrhea, and oily stool. It causes about a four to six pound weight loss per year. Not a lot, but, but still good. Um, Adipex is the most common medication. It's been around since the 1950s. Um, it is a stimulant. It affects the hypothalamus to release norepinephrine. Also works on other tissues to release epinephrine to break down stored fat. Also releases small amounts of serotonin and dopamine so people feel a little better. Um, people feel like they're on crack. They're like really high strung. It's, it causes anxiety. It's like speed basically. Um, it's uh, anorexigenic uh, or anoretic. Basically, it causes anorexia, causes you to lose your appetite. It can cause significant pulmonary hypertension and valve heart disease when used with fenfluramine or dexafenfluramine. There used to be this fenfen where it was like fentramine plus fenfluramine, but they took that off the market because it caused a lot of valve disease. Fentramine in and of itself has been proven to uh, be safe. We do occasionally check echocardiograms before and after just to make sure someone is fine to be on the drug. You definitely don't want to put somebody on this if they already have pulmonary hypertension or significant valve disease. The problem with it is that the effects of it wear off after a few weeks. You build up a tolerance to it. Most patients take it for a few weeks. They lose a little bit of weight. It suppresses their appetite. Their heart starts racing. They get anxious and they you know feel good, like they can conquer the world. But then after a few weeks, that kind of all wears off. In Ohio, it's restricted. I don't know where you live, but in Ohio, you can only be on it for three months and then off for six months before you can go back on. Problems with it is it's an amphetamine and it can be abused. Um, it has a lot of stimulant side effects where patients get jittery and anxious and shaky and their heart races. But it's like any stimulant, similar to caffeine. If you're on it for an extended period of time, those those stimulant side effects kind of go away. So after about three or four days, that, that kind of wears off. Withdrawal from it. Is similar to like caffeine withdrawal, gives you fatigue, sleepiness, tiredness, and kind of all the opposite effects. You definitely want to avoid alpha blockers and antidepressants with this. Casimia is a combination of fentramine and topamax. Now this one, because they're lower doses of both, you can kind of be on it forever. Um, even in Ohio, you can be on it for, for a year. Topamax um, is the headache slash anti-convulsant migraine medication. Um, it's a it's modified it's a modified fructose. It's excreted in the urine. Um, the side effects are somnolence, depression, fatigue, hair loss, glaucoma, nystagmus. The other part of it is fentramine, which we've already kind of gone over. It causes a little bit of weight loss too, um, similar to the Xenical. Um, Adipex can cause some weight loss. Also, you're not talking about a lot five to maybe ten pounds at the most. 
in a year. Bontril is uh, fendimetatrazine tartrate. It's a stimulant very similar to fentramine. It's a sympathomimetic amine. Um, the magnitude of increased weight loss of drug-treated patients over placebo-treated patients is only a fraction of a pound per week. So it's not a lot. It doesn't cause any valvulopathies. Um, it's contraindicated if you're hypersensitive to it or have idiosyncratic reactions or sympath to sympathomimetics. Um, <clears throat> people with advanced arteriosclerosis, symptomatic cardiovascular disease, moderate and severe hypertension, hyperthyroidism, and glaucoma shouldn't be on it, which are also similar to fentramine. Um, people who are highly nervous or agitated shouldn't be on it. Uh, patients with a history of drug abuse and patients taking other CNS stimulants, including monoamine uh, oxidase inhibitors. Contrave is a combination of Wellbutrin and naltrexone uh, or Narcan. Um, bupropion, bupropion is a dopa norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor and a pure opioid antagonist reduces reward from eating and reduces cravings which is kind of why it works for smoking cessation when you eat or smoke your triggers a, a reward center in your brain this blocks that so that you don't feel good after you eat um, the two together have a synergistic effect on weight loss affects the hypothalamus and decreases appetite people lose about 11 to 16 pounds per year Uh, about 15, 11 to 16 pounds per year, or about 5% of their starting weight. Saxenda is basically Victoza, just at a higher dose. It's Lagrutalide. It's an injectable GLP-1 agonist. Um, it's appetite and calorie intake uh, regulation. It suppresses your appetite. It does not increase energy expenditure like fentramine. Um, usually people start at a lower dose and work their way up to 3 milligrams. Um, you should probably cut back some of their other diabetic meds. In and of itself, it does not cause hypoglycemia, but there are obviously the theoretic risks of pancreatitis, so monitor closely. The side effects are mostly GI, uh, nausea about 39% of people, but only 9% quit the study due to the nausea. There's been five studies done on Saxenda with about 3,380 patients, um, which diet, counseling, and Saxenda. Here's the results. Percentage of patients losing greater than or equal to 5% of their body weight was 62.3%. Um, in the Saxenda group, um, percentage of patients losing more than 10% of their body weight was 33.9%. So it works really, really well. And of all the drugs we've had so far for weight loss, this seems to cause the most weight loss along with fentramine, obviously. But these are super expensive. The advantage of fentramine is that it's really cheap and generic and costs like 15 bucks uh, uh, per script. And so the medications should be used as an adjunct. They should not be your first line. The most important thing I'll always say is diet, 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 diet. You have to learn how to eat right first before you start using medications and all these other ways. And you may not need to use medications. A lot of my patients, once they learn how to diet and track calories and keep their proteins high, they end up not even needing anything else. Um, you want to maximize a short amount of time on the drugs because a lot of them have unintended consequences that, that we know or don't know of that are dangerous. Um, a lot of the drugs require frequent physician visits. In Ohio, you have to see a doctor face-to-face -face every 30 days. Um, you definitely want to have social support systems in place where your family is also dieting with you or your spouse. It's very hard to quit smoking or diet when your partner, the person you live with, is still smoking and still eating poorly. There are lots of apps that can help you lose weight. One of them is called MyFitnessPal. We'll get into that later. Um, and there are lots of diet resources. you got to give your patients a lot of information and resources <clears throat> to help them. Um, daily weigh-ins. 
seem to help significantly when someone sees their weight going up day over day. They adjust or starting to go down. They get happy. So it's a reinforcement or a reward. And accountability. If you have someone who can hold you accountable or you can talk to, it's very, very helpful. So what are the goals of a healthy diet? My patients always ask me, what's the best diet? Like, how should I pick a diet? What should I do? Which ones are great? Um, So you want to pick a diet that's cheap or free. If you don't have to pay for it or it's completely free, then fine. You want to pick something that's obviously good for your health, that's easy to follow, doesn't require a master's degree. You want to pick something that's sustainable long term. We're not in this for the next two months or three months. We want to do this for the next 10, 15, 20 years. You want to pick a diet that does not rely on fads or trends. Um, You want to pick a diet that makes no outrageous promises. You want something that's evidence-based, not, you know, you saw a guy on Instagram touting it or some guy selling a program. You want something that's evidence-based with a lot of studies and a lot of research behind it. And you want to develop a healthy relationship with food. Once again, we don't want to label foods as good or bad. Yes, if you ate only Pop-Tarts, that would be bad for you. But a Pop-Tart in and of itself, if combined with a really good rest of your diet, is not bad. It's just a calorie. It's just food. It's more calorie dense than, say, kale or lettuce or a Caesar salad or whatever you like to eat. But we don't want people, and especially children, we don't want children growing up thinking, well, this is bad for you or this is good for you. You want people to have a healthy relationship with food so that they can... Determine how much they want to eat or not eat depending on how calorie dense it is or isn't isn't you if you have a calorie count that you need to stick to You will definitely make sure that you do that. So what is your diet requirements? How many calories should you eat? Let's get into this a little bit. This is the most important part for most people So the best starting place for the vast majority of people is you take your weight times about 12 or 14 That should be your maintenance calories might be slightly less for females Um, you know you could use 11 or 12 in their case Um, weight times 10 is usually a good place to start for a deficit so if you weigh 200 pounds multiply that by 12 you get about 2400 if you multiply it by 14 you get about 2800 that's your maintenance calories if you want to be in a deficit and start losing weight 200 times 10 is about 2000 calories so here's the point when you go back to that 300 pound patient you take a 300 pound patient who should technically be eating 36 to 4,000 calories a day for maintenance and now you tell them to, to get on a 1,200 calorie diet, you've reduced their de- weight, you've, you've reduced their calorie intake significantly to about a third or less than what it should be. They will lose some weight initially, but then they go through metabolic adaptation and now they've adapted to 1,200 calories and they're stuck there and you can't really lower it. If you were more reasonable and told them just take your weight times 10, which is 3,000 calories, they're still in a huge deficit because they're used to eating maybe 37 or 3,800 calories. Now they're eating 3,000 a day. They lose weight. They get to 270. They get kind of stuck. You reduce it a little more. It's like 2,800, 2,900. They lose a little more weight. They, they lose more. They get down to like 200, 220. Now they look pretty good. They've lost a good amount of weight, but they're still eating like 27, 2,600 calories, which you could keep going lower. But if you got them down to 1,200 right off the bat, it's a losing battle because they're going to get to like 270, 280 and be stuck at 1,200 calories. Not a whole lot you can do. There's something called a reverse diet, which we could do and bring their calories back up slowly over time. But that's a a subject for a different lecture. The other important thing is you want 0.7 to 1.2 grams of protein per pound. So for most people that weigh about 200 pounds, you're looking at 140 to 240. 
Um, like I said, for most males, around 160 to 180 is good. For most females, about 120 to 140 uh, is good. Then the rest of your calories can be any combination of carbs and fat, and there's been hundreds of studies that have proven this over time. And the key is do not eat back calories that you think you burned. A lot of people wear fitness trackers or these smart watches, and they think they're burning 300 calories a day or more or 600. Do not eat those calories back. Um, if your watch tells you you lost 300, you burned off 300 calories, don't think you can eat an extra 300 calories that day because those are never accurate. Um, they can be wildly inaccurate, anywhere from 20 to 80% inaccurate, depending on the study you look at. The calories and exercise should be independent. You should eat X amount of calories a day, regardless of what amount of exercise you do or don't do that day. Your calorie count is completely independent of whether or not you exercise that day. Um, and the fact of the matter is, we really don't know how much we are burning. We just got to pick a calorie count that should cause weight loss. Um, so what's a body recomposition? Um, this is gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time. So this works in the four classes of people. Um, if you're in a calorie deficit, it's hard to gain muscle unless you're one of these four people. It's usually in the obese. People are quite overweight. If you cut your calories and start lifting weights, you will gain muscle and lose fat. That's been tested and proven over time. Someone who's new to training, if you've never lifted weights before or, you've, or, or um, you're completely new to training, if you start training and you're in a calorie deficit, you will gain muscle and you will lose fat. Same thing with deconditioned lifters. Let's say you used to lift a year ago and stopped and you haven't lifted in a while. Now if you start lifting again, it will come back. You'll grow your muscles quickly and lose fat as well. And people on anabolic steroids. If you're on steroids, uh, it's that's the whole point of steroids is to gain muscle and lose fat. <clears throat> and it will work. Um, so I always recommend my Fitness Pal. It's an excellent app. Uh, it's simple to use if you're kind of technology savvy. Some of my older patients are not technology savvy and there's things you can do. Um, the most important thing is set up an account, put your age, sex, weight, height. Um, do not connect your fitness tracker to it because we don't want to eat back those calories. Adjust the calories to your goal. It might spit out a goal for you that's not good enough. It might give you 2,400 calories when you should really be on 2,200, but just adjust it. Um, you want to set it to 40, 40, 20 protein, carbs, and fat breakdown. That should set your uh, grams of protein about 140 to 160. Just pick a number. It has to add up to 100%. Start tracking for four weeks, weigh yourself daily and put it in the app, and then adjust your calories up or down, but keep protein the same, just adjust your fats and carbs. This is kind of what the app uh, looks like. It gives you your calorie counts, you can add food, you know, it adds it up, um, and it tells you, like, you, you, we don't want the exercise part here, so, you know, we would delete this or don't connect your fitness tracker, but it should work. So what do you do if you're not losing weight? Make sure you get a food scale and you're weighing everything in grams. Uh, before it's cooked, throw the chicken breast in there. It's 140 grams. Put that in your app. Uh, otherwise, you're guesstimating. Now, you will get better at guesstimating over time, and eventually you won't need to weigh anything. You'll know this is about 140 grams of chicken. This is 180. This is 200. So the diet after the diet. This is a very important part. It's not only important to lose weight, but we also now need to 
not gain it back. Um, so your new maintenance calories will be lower. This is one thing people don't realize. If you used to eat 2,400 calories before and that maintained your weight, now it's going to be less. Now that you're down to only 130 pounds or 150 pounds, you probably can only eat 1,800 or 1,700 to stay the same. So you want to make sure that you reset and recalculate your BMR or total daily energy expenditure. Um, your BMR is going to be lower, your basic metabolic rate, your, and, and you may need to reverse diet um, to increase your BMR. So now let's say that 300-pound patient is eating 1,200 calories, they get to 280, and it stops losing weight. So what do you do? You do something called a reverse diet, and this could take a very long time if they've adapted, you know, like we said, sometimes years. But you want to slowly start increasing calories over time to reset their BMR and bring it up. And you want to do it slowly to minimize fat gain. So if they're eating 1,200 calories for the next week, eat like 1,400 or two to three weeks, wait a little, go up to 1,600, just take your time every month, add a few calories. Um, they got to monitor their weight, keep lifting, maintain the same kind of exercise habits. Try to get that calorie count back up over 2,000. It may take a long time, maybe even 2,400. Now they're 280 or 270 and they're at 2,400. Now reducing to 2,200 <clears throat> or less will actually cause uh, weight loss. All right, I'm going to take a sip of water here. I'm getting dry throat. Um, and there's the studies listed below uh, to talk about that. So the, the other biggest problem is weight regain. Um, when people lose a lot of weight over time, if you look at their co total calorie intake, it's been going down over time. Their body fat goes down. Um, their total da daily energy expenditure is this gray line. It goes down over time. You start increasing calories, which you like suddenly increase it. Here you see this straight jump called rapid overfeeding. Boom, they gain a lot of body fat and their uh, uh, uh total daily energy spender doesn't go up that that much it lags and it goes up slowly however if they lose a lot of weight and you reverse diet kind of slowly you'll see that the body fat level stays about the same the total daily energy expenditure slowly goes up in a stepwise fashion and your caloric intake slowly goes up so you want to do these reverse dieting and weight regain kind of slowly um, it's very very important to do that in these people that are metabolically adapted to super low calories or quote-unquote have broken uh, metabolism. So here's some resources. I really like the macros ink calculator. Um, it definitely spits out the best macros. You want to pick sedentary unless you're a construction worker and lift 70 pound bags of concrete every day, but choose sedentary. Um, choose a moderate to severe or painful deficit if you want or try try one that's not as severe, but play around with it. Um, I like that. If I had to recommend one single book for weight loss, I like the one by Lane Norton, and I've read them all. I literally have a library full of over 40 or 50 books on weight loss. But the one by Lane Norton pretty much goes through a lot of the stuff we're talking about here and has the same philosophy. The guy is a uh, very, very uh, brilliant when it comes to uh, weight loss. I like to conclude with the golden pyramid of fat loss. Um, the most important thing here is a calorie deficit. This is completely non-negotiable. You have to be in a calorie deficit to lose fat. I'm not talking about weight loss, just fat loss. Your protein intake needs to be 0.7 to 1.2 grams per pound of lean body mass. you got to lift some weights. Sleep is important for your body to rebuild and restructure. And then cardio, uh, if necessary, towards the end. And this is more for physique athletes. If you are trying to get super lean at the end, don't use up your cardio in the beginning because your body adapts to it. 
wait till those last few weeks where you really want to get shredded and get your body fat percentage below uh, 10%. That'll be very, very uh, important. You can add in cardio there uh, and get your body fat levels super low before your body adapts to cardio. In about two weeks, your body adapts to cardio and you're not burning very many calories. Um, fat loss fundamentals is another little graphic here. Non-negotiable is a calorie deficit. Highly advisable is all this stuff here. Making your plan as easy to stick to as possible. Make it so you can adhere to it. Consuming adequate protein, resistance training, keeping an active lifestyle. Um, this says stuff uh, most people don't need to worry about. What is the quote-unquote best diet? How many meals to eat during the day? Your carb-to-fat ratio, calorie cycling, whether your cardio is fasted or not, the time of day you eat what you consume after a workout or before, what time you train. This is the stuff you don't need to worry about, but this is the stuff that most people like obsess over and want to think about. So I hope that you uh, don't do that. Stuff that can just be completely ignored, unnecessary food avoidance, cheat meals, juice cleanses, weight loss, tea bags, self-proclaimed quick fixes and false promises. Here's another graphic. If you need 1,800 calories to lose weight, and you're following that all throughout the week, but then on Saturday and Sunday you eat 3,500 each, your average is 2,300 and you're not losing weight. So you can sabotage yourself on the weekend if you uh, eat too much. So you got to be very, very careful. And, and, and patients do this a lot without even um, realizing it. And, and we do it. Everybody does it. So once again, if you do cardio only and cut your calories, you'll look very thin. If you do weights and 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 uh, and uh, and uh, diet, you actually will build muscle and lose fat, which is what we want. Another very important graphic is weight loss uh, and fat loss are two different things. Fat loss will be this green line that's slowly going down over time. Weight loss kind of fluctuates because one day you have more water, less water, more glycogen in your muscles, less hormones, things like that. Food in your stomach, food not in your stomach, whether you had a bowel movement or not makes a huge difference. And then it says fat loss happens slowly over weeks and months or longer. So chill, focus on the fat loss, not the weight loss. This is just a funny cartoon that I always like to show. Survey reports high obesity rate in young people and baby boomers. And this is from such a long time ago, but it's still applicable. They grow up so fast, don't they? The mom says that. And then the dad says, sure do. They become more like us every day. And these are... Um, obese children looking more and more like their obese parents. I like to tell people that there's your, your, your obesity is not really genetic. Um, and people with short stature syndrome or like dwarfism or midgets, it is. They have to be obese. But for the vast majority of people, you don't inherit obesity, but you inherit your parents' eating habits and lifestyle habits. And that's why um, that happens. You know, here's another kind of illustration of that. Why are children uh, so overweight? Um, the dad is saying, when I was a kid, you can never get me to come inside. Mom's saying, now this mom can't get her kids to go outside. They're just sitting around playing video games and eating. Uh, this is a picture of me. Um, like most people, I lost weight as well. My, my entire life I've been doing that. This is me at about 195 pounds. This is me at 147 and a half. <clears throat> I did all the stuff that I've been talking about. Um, and obviously it works uh, if you do it. And, and I'm not using just myself as an example. I'm talking about literally thousands of patients over the years, research articles, books. Um, we know what works and what doesn't work. And I'm just trying to spread that knowledge so that no other patients have to be misinformed or given bad diet advice. This is how you can find me. Um, you know, all my handles on the various social media platforms. These are my kids. They're very cute so far. 
and thank you very much I'll open the floor to questions and answers and I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards as well so I'm going to repeat the questions so that the microphone can pick them up um, I may decide to truncate this and cut out the audio of the audience talking but I'll repeat the questions on the microphone so you can hear me so go ahead okay so she said her and her husbands are her husband are in the 70s and they are life coaches and they've been coaching people for the last 40 to 50 years on living a healthy lifestyle and that they agree with everything that I've said and they're so glad that it wasn't about some fad diet or non-evidence-based diet and they agree with me wholeheartedly. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. That's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to educate everyone so that we can give our patients uh, the proper tools and the proper advice to lose weight correctly. So the question is about the ketogenic diet. So it, it kind of depends. It, it is very high in saturated fat, or at least it can be. Um, if you have art, uh, atherosclerosis or heart disease, you, you probably want to avoid that. It's not the healthiest thing in the world. We know without a doubt that saturated fat raises your LDL and cholesterol, and then without a doubt that causes heart attacks and strokes. So I wouldn't recommend that unless you're, you're really young and you don't smoke and you don't have any other risk factors. But even then, it's probably not a very good long-term solution. Yes, so the Obesity Code is, is just a book that Dr. Jung is trying to sell. He spends about 240 pages talking about diet in general, and then the last 10, 15 pages telling people why they're terrible if they don't do intermittent fasting and that why that's the only way to live. I'm not opposed to intermittent fasting. If you want to do that, you can. And it will work for you if, if you're able to adhere to it. But as long as it keeps your calories down, it should work. There's no magic about it. There's no, uh, there's something called chrononutrition where they tried to decide if you eat three or four times a day versus six or seven times a day if it matters. It really doesn't. At the end of the day, all that matters is the amount of calories you've had in 24 hours. If you're in a deficit, you'll lose weight. If you're in a surplus, you'll gain weight. If you're at maintenance, you'll just maintain your weight. There's no magic in and of itself with any of these diets. Um, it just it'll it'll work if it puts you into a deficit and you can adhere to it for a long time. Yeah. So the the next question was about elimination diets like Whole30 or uh, the TB12, Tom Brady 12 diet, if, if there are foods that you're sensitive to and they cause uh, issues with your gut or diarrhea or inflammation, whatever you think might be going on, um, you can eliminate them and that's fine. Um, they have found that if you eat less calories and you're in a calorie deficit, that it, the inflammation goes down regardless whether you're eliminating certain foods or not. Now, if you have like a, a certain sensitivity to something, that's a different story. But these elimination diets usually eliminate a bunch of calories out of your diet so that you are technically in a deficit and then inflammation goes down anyways. And all the studies they've done on reduced calorie diets, they all reduce uh, inflammation because your fat cells are going down and you're losing weight. So it ends up uh, working anyways. There's no magic uh, to any of these diets. The Tom Brady diet and the whole food diet, they, they eliminate some things that are a little bit odd, like tomatoes and certain things. I'm not uh, a big fan of that. So... You know, if, if you like that and it seems fun and you can do it and you say, I eat like Tom Brady does, even though I, I doubt he actually eats like this. But if you want to, that's fine. Uh, I'm not opposed to it. Just don't. I'm just opposed to diets that are completely unhealthy. Good. Yes. So just getting a little personal here. Yeah, I am a uh, personal trainer. I'm certified by the NASM. 
the National Association of Sports uh, Medicine. I became a certified personal trainer uh, about a year ago, uh, maybe a little more than that. And, and mainly I use it to train myself, my kids, my family, my friends. Mainly I did it because my trainer moved away and I wanted an education in uh, sports medicine and fitness training because I coach a lot of kids and a lot of the stuff we do in coaching and strength training and conditioning sometimes doesn't follow the evidence. So now I know uh, a lot more about that. Also, I've I've coached and helped a lot of people who want to lose weight and be physique athletes. They want their body fat percentage to be about 10% or less, even whether they're entering a competition or not, just they're doing it just for fun. And it's really cool and unique to see what the body uh, is capable of.